Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Mind Body Musings podcast, or welcome if this is your first time. My name is Madeline Moon, and I will be your host for this podcast and every podcast. Today, when you're listening to this podcast, I will be in Alabama during the annual family reunion on my mom's side, and I decided I wanted to share the story with you because I think it's a pretty cute story, and it's just worth sharing. It's a sweet story. So every year we go to this place in Alabama called Dolphin Island. If you're around that area, you may be familiar with it. We've done this since I was in the womb of my mother and much beyond that, much earlier than that. And the story goes that my grandparents grew up in the same general area. They, I think they were in the same neighborhood. And they knew each other as kids, and when my grandpa was at the age of enlisting, he went into the um, the Navy, and my grandma, over that time, quote, became a woman, and he came back from the Navy, saw her walking in the neighborhood one day, and he rolled down his window, he was in his car, and he said, hey, Pat, where are you off to? And she goes, I'm going to buy some black shorts, because that's how she talked. And um, she said, where are you going? And he goes, well, I'm going to buy some black shorts. And so he had her hop in the car, and they went off, and they got some black shorts together, because she needed to go shopping. And that was their first date, technically. And around this time, there was a brand new bridge being built, crossing over from, um, I don't know exactly what city it is, I'm assuming it's somewhere around Mobile, Alabama, to Dauphin Island, and that is a little private gulf area in, in Alabama, and the, the bridge was having its grand opening, crossing over the bridge, like it was a whole thing, it's a whole thing, it was an event, it's like not, this is so cute, because it's not something we do anymore, like get in the car to go cross over a bridge for the first time, like a, basically a ribbon cutting ceremony, and this bridge was being built, and my grandpa was like, we gotta go, we, we gotta be in line to cross over this bridge, it's a really big deal, so they were the fifth car to, uh, cross over this bridge and ever since then they started making they got married started making all these babies and the family is now ginormous there's 40 of us and it just keeps multiplying as everyone makes more babies and every single year we go to that area and we have uh, a week long of just being with family and I don't get to make it every single year. I didn't get to make it last year and maybe even not the year before that. I don't remember. But I am making it this year. So by the time you're listening to this, I will be with everyone. You can follow along. I'm sure I'll be Instagramming quite a bit. So you can follow us there if you want to see what this madness is like with the that side, the Pope side of my family. But it is such a fun time. And I think it's a really sweet story. That's That's been going on since my dad was dating my mom. I remember like that was the that was one of the ways that my dad knew my mom really liked him as she invited him to the family reunion at Dauphin Island. And then they had a baby and then they had me. And this has just been a really big part of everyone's life, our entire lives. This will always be something really important 
to our family. And so that's where I'm at right now. I'm on this family trip. And if you listened to last week's episode with Natalie Miles, you heard me talk a little bit about this because she was basically consulting with my spirit guides about what I needed to know about this trip. So maybe I'll update you on whether or not that prediction and forecast came to fruition while I was while I was here. So today's guest is Ruby Warrington. You are most likely familiar with her by now if you are on the podcast circuit and listening to all these different shows because her her coined term, sober curious, has been really rapidly making its rounds around this conscious community because there's something so refreshing around the idea of being curious when it comes to alcohol rather than rigid. So she wrote a book called Sober Curious. She is a British lifestyle writer and a former features editor of the Sunday Times style supplement. She is the curator of The Numinous, an online magazine that bridges the gap between the mystical and the mainstream, and the co-founder of Sober Curious event series at Club, Club Soda NYC and Moon Club, an online mentoring program for spiritual activists. She lives here in Brooklyn, New York with her husband, Simon. I have been excitingly waiting to share this interview, and so today is the day I'm going to be releasing this, and very soon I will be releasing another interview with the other co-founder of Moon Club, which is, who is, Alexandra Roxo. So keep your eyes out for that as it will be releasing very shortly. But today's episode with Ruby is a really good sneak peek into the why of being curious around sobriety and alcohol and living a conscious lifestyle in that way, almost like this next level. And I know my entire life, I've had a very interesting relationship with alcohol. Um, I have certainly abused it in my life. When I think about my college years, I used alcohol as a part of my eating disorder to to be able to eat food without worrying about it because I lost that part of my brain when I got drunk. And so I wouldn't be obsessively counting my calories. So I had more permission to eat, but I'd also drink so much that I got very sick often. Um, I could do a podcast episode about this if anyone is ever curious about hearing that side of my life because I talk a lot about the eating disorder. Well, I used to talk a lot about my disordered eatings, but I haven't really gone so much into alcohol myself in a solo episode in my relationship with it. But this was such a, a, a beautiful opportunity for me to be able to explore that side of my life and and her life, Ruby's life, and also talking about how do you have a very thriving social life without drinking alcohol, especially if you live in a city where going out and the nightlife and music and parties is the thing to do. How do you then include yourself and have fun and not feel excluded and not also feel like maybe you have this air of judgment on you or other people are judging you how do we deal with all of these social cues while being sober curious so all of that you can look forward to in today's episode before we head on over there here's a review of the week it comes from amy berry hill and she says amazing with a little sparkle star and then five stars I can honestly say Maddie's podcast has changed my life. Every time I'm in a funk or needing some internal motivation, I can always count on her words to bring me back into my sacred feminine spirit. I wish I could give it six stars. Thank you, Amy. Oh, thank you so much. We've been in contact and email quite a bit. So I know your soul and I know that you really do 
have this craving and this desire to go into your divine feminine. And I'm so grateful to be a vehicle for that, for delivering the insight that you crave. And I appreciate you taking the time to share this on the iTunes ratings and reviews. It means so much to me. I don't have any other announcements to share in today's episode. If you want to check out Sober Curious, go head on over to the show notes and you can grab the link to get the book. I will also include a link to Audible if you would like to get a free audiobook, audibletrial.com forward slash mind body musings. All of my listeners, if you've never had an Audible trial before, you can get a free audiobook and 30 days free. All right, let's head on over and hear from the wonderful, brilliant Ruby Warrington. We are here with Miss Ruby Warrington, and I have been really eager and really excited to have this conversation about sober curiosity, which is a term that I, I absolutely adore, um, especially for my audience coming from this black and white perspective. A lot of women who listen to the show really resonate with this all in or all out and finding the balance and finding the curiosity and the exploration is not first nature, right? So it's something that a lot of people here really have to work towards. And that black and white mentality around alcohol particularly can resonate with a lot of people. And Mm. it's really needed for a lot of people. But I love that you're opening up the doors to this other way we can perceive our relationship with alcohol. So Ruby, thank you for one, what you do. And for two, coming on the Mind Body Musings podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is one of my favorite conversations to have because it really touches on every area of our lives. When you start getting into it, as we will see, I'm sure. um, Yeah, I'm really, really happy to get the message out um, to as many people as possible. So thank you. I know I, I for one, have a very interesting relationship with alcohol when I look at my past. Um, Mm. Major, major abuse of alcohol when I was in college. Mm. And and there was always the idea that that was normal. It was fine. It wasn't alcoholism. It was to be expected. I was in college. Even more than that, I was in a sorority. This is what we do. Yeah. And that mentality was something that was implanted in my head very quickly. And it was easy to get on board with and because everyone else was doing it. And then after college it doesn't really just go away like you're still especially when you're in the younger years of your life and if you're in a big city and you're trying to make friends like everything feels like it is surrounded and revolves around alcohol Mm -hmm. the the mere idea of 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 adopting sober curiosity I'm, I'm just so grateful for this and the rise of this I'm curious have you felt that societally our culture is having more of a curiosity around our relationship with alcohol more than ever before absolutely and it's happening very fast actually so i started using the term sober curious um which i coined to kind of describe my own 
evolving relationship with alcohol and my own evolving perception of how I was using alcohol um, in sort of 2015, I think. And at the time, again, like you said, if for me to be questioning my alcohol, my alcohol use was essentially the same as, well, you should be an AA. Like if you're questioning it, if you, if it's presenting any kind of a problem in your life and you're an alcoholic, you must go to AA. And that was literally, it was so black and white. It was one or the other. You're a normal drinker or you're a problem drinker. And therefore you're an alcoholic and you must go to AA. Um, and at the time there was really nowhere else to kind of have a more open-minded, shall we say, or exploratory conversation around this. And so I began an event series here in, in New York called Club Soda NYC in spring 2016. And again, at the time, there just really wasn't anything else like it that I had been able to find. And yeah, over that period from 2016 to my book came out um, with January 1st, 2019, there has been an explosion, particularly in the past year, I would say, not only of um, more events that are, that are pitching themselves as alcohol-free, I mean, pitching themselves like are overtly alcohol-free to alcohol-free bars popping up to tons of alternative, no alcohol drink brands coming onto the market and lots and lots of people writing about this trend. I don't like the word trend. I think it's a movement and an actual consciousness shift that is not going to be reversed. It's not a trend that's going to come and go because I truly believe that the more people can feel safe and feel okay about investigating how they're using alcohol, the more of us will choose not to, um, based on my own personal experience and just everything I'm hearing from the community that's growing around this also. So yeah, it's definitely, it's something new to be speaking about it this way and it's growing rapidly. And I think the fact that it's growing so fast and that there's a whole industry popping up around it to answer increasing consumer demand for alcohol-free experiences um, is a real indication of how many people just like you were sort of waiting for this, whether they, whether they were aware of it or not. But that once the um, the invitation or the door had been opened to, hey, you don't have to, you could choose not to, you don't have to blindly go along with this just because it's what everybody else is doing. It's okay to say that sometimes alcohol is problematic for you. It doesn't mean that you are an alcoholic necessarily. <laughs> As mm. that, that door being opened has given people so much permission to step into a way of living and a different relationship with alcohol, which feels very supportive and healthy and yeah, people. I think people. A lot of people are really grateful for it. We really, really, really need that. Like what you, everything you just said. We really so need it to be okay for all of us to say that alcohol can be a problem because mm. what you're saying is so true. And I remember there's a particular, um, I have a family member who anytime that they heard someone was an alcoholic, there was like this, Ooh, like, and I never understood that. Cause I, I look at my own college and I'm like, man, if, if that person is considered an alcoholic and mm. I couldn't go out any night without drinking, what mm -hmm. in the world does that mean that make me and that person mm -hmm. isn't even drinking anymore? So like mm -hmm. maybe I should call myself this so that I'm not drinking and, and I, I don't call myself this, but what I love about your book, Sober Curious, is that you point out uh, that anyone and you said this in your book and it was it was one of those moments where it really takes you out of your own body for a second but you <laughs> said anybody who drinks on a regular basis is probably kind of just a little bit addicted <laughs> yes it's a controversial kind of theory that I've come up with I suppose but ultimately and I break it down in the book right 
Um, I believe it's harder not to become addicted to alcohol with in terms of this, we live in what I call a dominant drinking culture where it's very much the norm to drink because of the nature of the beast, the way that our brains are hardwired and the fact that alcohol is heavily, heavily marketed at us from all directions, from as soon as we're old enough to understand, I think it's actually harder not to develop some level of attachment to alcohol, whether that's an emotional dependency through to a more severe physical dependency or physical addiction depends very much on the individual. Um, everything from their physiology to life experiences to conditioning will have an impact on how deeply entrenched our attachment to alcohol becomes. Um, but I think that anybody who's drinking regularly, and by that I mean, you know, weekly probably, is is probably attached on some level to alcohol, you know? And I think, but for so long, like you rightly said, there's been so much stigma around the idea of addiction, that addiction is not normal, that addiction is um, something to be ashamed of. Mm. That addiction is something to be frightened of. You know, when your family member is, oh, they're addicted, that's actually speaking to a fear. Oh, I don't know how, oh, are they going to hurt themselves? Are they going to hurt me? How do I handle this? It's fear based, right? And so by taking away that kind of stigma and saying, actually, and I interviewed, there's an amazing brain uh, opioids addict turned brain scientist who I quote in the book, who had a brilliant book out called The Biology of Desire, where he really breaks down how our brain interacts with different substances, alcohol included. Um, and he, in an interview that I did with him for the book, he said, you know, there's nothing to say that addiction isn't normative, that there's nothing, like, in fact, it's, it's very easy and normal to become addicted to many different things is how our brains work. Um, so to try and remove, yeah, part, a big part of the whole kind of mission and message is to remove some of the stigma about addiction and say, we're human beings, we're going to get addicted to things. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and how can we best equip ourselves so that our addictive tendencies don't get out of control and end up hurting us and hurting other people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the science part of that is so fascinating to me. And I think it, even that like helps open up the doors for more of us to be like, okay, maybe there's something that's happening in our brains that we can't really control. <laughs> and we should put away all of these ideas of the stigmatism around what this means and trying to figure that out and said, look at the dynamics of what's happening with us and alcohol and our reliance on it as individuals and not like the collective like oh alcoholism means this for everybody because it's always going to be different and sometimes it really comes down to just biologically physiologically exactly. exactly how your body processes alcohol and how although you know i do i come from a slightly mystical kind of angle too and i think there's all there is a mystical mm -hmm. missing piece which is about how our emotional body interacts with our mental body and our physical body and there's a kind of like a, a magical piece that we can't really explain that is where addiction sort of lives in a way you know it's answering an emotional need it's triggering a physical reaction and our mind is playing a big part in in the choices we make around it so those three things interact in a way that's kind of like the secret magic piece which is where Again, I, you know, I talk a lot about the Sober Curious journey being a, a journey of spiritual self-discovery because it's really about trying to get into the meat of where those three things interact and to the core of like what's actually really behind this behavior and how can I approach it from, how can I look at it from multiple different perspectives to give my, to best equip myself to navigate this drinking culture that we live in in a way that feels really true to me. So let's rewind a little bit and go into your own story that, what, leading up to um, 
the book release of Sober Curious. And one very important piece is that you're the creator of The Numinous, which is just mm-hmm. an amazing platform. Um, but I just want to hear a little bit more about your own journey with alcohol and, and relationship. And um, eventually we'll get into some sober first because that's a really mm-hmm. interesting thing. Mm, sober first are huge. Um, so I, um, my background is in magazine journalism in the UK where I'm from. And I had a really successful career there writing for tons of magazines edit, as, as a working as a features writer and editor. And it's an industry that's very, um, much awash with alcohol, should we say <laughs> quite kind of, it's quite sort of known, I suppose, anything within the kind of field of arts and entertainment actually I've since learned is a high risk career for alcoholism. I think there are multiple factors again playing into that. But for me, one of the big ones was I was going to events every night of the week where there were free drinks. And I was also kind of shy and had a lot of social anxiety. And the combination of those two things meant that, yeah, I came to rely heavily on alcohol as a way to feel comfortable in work situations. And I also really enjoyed it. I was a, you know, I, I actually, besides the social anxiety, I generally really associated alcohol with celebration. I was not an anxious drunk. I was not a depressive drunk. In fact, if I was ever feeling down, there would be the periods when I just cut alcohol out and stepped away from it because I really wanted to, I guess I intuitively knew that it wouldn't help in those situations. So I was always a really kind of happy drunk. And so again, another reason I didn't really question my drinking until I began to, I found myself sort of grappling with the classic in a way, um, existential crisis and really questioning having achieved so many of the things I wanted in my life and my career, what it was really all for and how much satisfaction I was actually getting from, you know, doing celebrity interviews and writing features about handbags. (laughs) And so, and I laugh and that's not to belittle anybody who's doing that and is getting tons of life satisfaction out of that. But for me, I really got to a point where I was questioning, what's the meaning of this? Is this really... Don't, do I have anything else to offer? And that's when I had the idea for the numinous. Um, and it coincided. It was when that, that sort of questioning about my purpose and what I was really here to contribute started to become very present for me, that it started to really shine a light on how alcohol was really making me feel. Whereas I was, yeah, I was definitely still using it to have more fun. I'm doing that in air quotes, have more fun. Um, It was definitely then I did, I think, swing into beginning to use it as a way to escape from this kind of insistent, more and more insistent voice inside me that was like, there's more to life. You've got more to give. You need to step it up. Like there's, you need to take some risks here, you know, try something else. Um, Launch the numinous. And so, yeah, it was around that time that I really began to notice how anytime I drank, the self-doubt and anxiety and paranoia and feelings of hopelessness and just kind of emptiness would be exacerbated so, so much. Um, and it became harder and harder to ignore the fact that alcohol was actually contributing to a lot of feelings of confusion and anxiety I was, I began to have. And so that was when I, that was when I got sober curious, as I put it, and started actually really questioning, why am I using this thing when I know it makes me feel this way? Not that it matters in general, but I'm curious what age you were at when this happened. When the questioning started, I guess I was around 34, maybe. Yeah. Okay. All right. So when you said that you would feel those feelings of, um, which ones did you say? It was upset, sadness. I was confused. I was very anxious and I was feeling quite hopeless and dejected and sort of like I just lost all of my enthusiasm for life 
And did that happen when you were drinking or in, in like a bigger macro scale? Like, did it happen the minute you started drinking, you started feeling that way? Or was it more like a cloud looming over? I was having tons of fun, Mm. (laughs) but I started feeling that way when I was hungover and in the days following a hangover, you know, um, there was a sense of emptiness. Yeah, this is exactly how I would describe it for me. I get these feelings of like the the first moment that I have something dark and rich t- touch my lips, like bourbon, yeah. which is my thing. <laughs> I'm so happy. I'm overjoyed. I love life. Everything is good. Everything is awesome. And then the next day, um, it doesn't matter what I drink, especially red wine, actually, but anything, I have this, this cloud feeling of anxiety and depression. And it's, mm-hmm. it's almost not that this is good. If you're going to drink, don't beat yourself up for it. But there is this, this frustration at me continuously having gone out and, and being and drinking and, and, in my heart of hearts, I know that it's not serving me as the leader I want to be, the woman I want to be. Um, I want to have a really pure vessel so that I can feel spirit more and feel like a channel. And this gets in the way. And it's just so challenging. The periods I've gone through without drinking, Ruby, they are so hard. They are so hard because then I'm only thinking about I want to be drinking. It's like I lack sovereignty in that decision. It's not that I make the decision and then I'm empowered by it. It's like I make it and then I'm frustrated that I made it and, and I go into like this kind of te- this uh, temper tantrum energy where I'm like, huh, I want to have fun. You know what I'm saying? It's not fair that they can all drink and be fine and I not and I can't. Well, first of all, I mean that I'm placing that on you, but that was something I can that used to come up for me. Like, how come everyone else can like drink and have fun and not feel this crappy afterwards? I just think they're not talking about it. And I also do think there was something bigger in me that needed to come out and wanted to be birthed. My soul in those hungover moments was going, what are you doing? You don't have time for this. Like, no, you're not going to get your, you think you're going to get your bliss from this pint of beer, but you're not, you're going to get your bliss from like taking a risk and putting this project out in the world that you care actually so deeply about. So there was that kind of like inner sense of frustration, but yeah, I was so there with like exactly what you you were describing, you know, um, oftentimes think drinking, thinking it was going to be different this time. And then being so frustrated and pissed off with myself when I wake up the next morning and guess what, back in the same situation, feeling terrible again. Um, and it's so hard to override the conditioning that says alcohol is what's going to bring you bliss and joy and relaxation and pleasure and connection, because that's all we hear. That's all we hear about alcohol until it gets so bad that we are an alcoholic and we are have we've you know we've got that label um but i think yeah i mean it's just it's it's a it's been for me rather than a kind of like full stop no more drink it's been a, a it has been a slow unpicking over the years over that kind of 8 9 year period of like just less and less and less and almost going entering into those situations where i would choose a drink or as like an experiment as to hmm, how, what am I actually using this for? What's it going to feel like the next day? Oh yeah, I was right. It's going to feel like this the next day. Okay. And slowly over time, literally reprogramming all of my thinking around drinking, you know, and that's not something that can necessarily happen overnight. I don't think. Can we zoom the lens in just a little bit closer to what that process looks like for you? 
um, particularly in the connection aspect, whether it be with your husband, with friends, with invitations, with going to a music venue? What Mm. did that look like in the beginning period for you when this was all very new um, and something you were deeply craving and trying to be devoted to? What did that feel like being in those situations? Well, it's interesting. In a way, I had a unique experience, but then everyone's experience will be unique because we're all different. But um, my, I very shortly, well, a year or so after I'd really begun thinking about this more deeply, I moved to New York. And so I found myself in moving in completely different social circles, many of which were connected to the numinous, which I had now begun working on. So I would find myself socializing at yoga sessions, kundalini discos, gong baths, um, breathwork ceremonies where alcohol was definitely not on the table. And yet I was able to meet people on a very vulnerable and open level and feel what, and have real connections that didn't require any alcohol. And so that's why, you know, I recommend trying out these sorts of, this kind of like social scene that's, that sprung up around the more alternative wellness space as a great way to kind of like meet and connect with people. But then on, you know, obviously there are still people in my life who, who drank and who still drink. And it's just been, it's been a question again of like, as you already brought up facing all of those sober firsts, that's my kind of very obvious term for, you know, the first time you do something sober that you would normally do with a drink and just really noticing what comes up in those situations and also appreciating that again, it's not going to be like you go out for dinner one time and you don't drink and then you're fine every time you go for dinner. No, probably for an extended period, every time you go out for dinner and don't drink and you're the only one at the table, not drinking, you're going to feel quite uncomfortable. And it's about getting used to that feeling of discomfort. And ultimately, now I have zero discomfort in those situations because like I said, I've kind of repro not only reprogrammed my conditioning around this is sometimes this is a time that I drink. People are going to think this about me if I drink all of the kind of like fears that pop up to also on the physiological level, lessening my physical desire or attachment to alcohol. So it's a process that takes time and yeah, it takes a lot of understanding, a lot, a lot of non-judgment, um, on both sides, I would say, I definitely went through a phase, you know, a few years in where I started feeling very judgmental of people who drank and very superior about the fact that I was able to like live without, I didn't need alcohol and they did, (laughs) which is just such bullshit. But it's also really interesting to watch when those judgments come up, you know? Um, I think I was in those situations judging part of myself that I felt had, you know, had, was weak or something, you know, part of myself that had kept drinking all those years when I didn't really want to. So yeah, it's all, it's a slow process. It requires a lot of forgiveness, a lot of understanding and, um, yeah, a lot of acceptance about the fact that things are not always going to be comfortable and easy, which you can apply to pretty much any situation in life where you're taking a risk or doing something differently or stepping outside of the norm or the status quo. One of the things you wrote about is that when you stop drinking, alcohol, it forces you in a certain way to come face to face with the situations and people you actually don't resonate with anymore. Mm -hmm. So when you're drinking, it's very easy to have what you might consider a great time with some friends or a great date. But Mm -hmm. if, if you slow down and you really look at that relationship, 
or that night, a lot of times you were waiting for the drinks to arrive anxiously. Like, mm-hmm. let's get the drinks to arrive. And then you felt better because your nerves were being eased. You were having less of, oh, your awareness and your presence. So what would happen if you took the alcohol away? And that's mm-hmm. something that really intrigues me and excites me about um, living a sober, curious life, which I would say that I, I was definitely, <laughs> was definitely on board more of the sober curious for the past like five months. And then, uh, Ruby, I moved to New York in, mm-hmm. uh, it's in, in February mm-hmm. and you're so spot on that there are so many events. I feel so blessed to be here cause I can go to ecstatic dance Tuesday night. Mm-hmm. I can go to Curtan on Wednesday. I can go to like, um, just like some sort of gathering to talk about tarot cards Thursday. Like I have an abundance of choices and options. And also this is such a nightlife city and it's fun. And, and I'm honoring (laughs) myself when I choose to go out and take advantage of that because I moved here to live it all and experience it all. And there's (laughs) nights where I want that. And yet I'm, I'm really glad we're having these conversations because it's bringing me back on board to remembering why I was so like gung ho about sober curious and I've I've gone through periods of my life for probably three months to four months of living completely alcohol free and they've been struggles and they were hard and challenging but also really great because I woke up every day feeling amazing Mm. and and going back to my original point of, of all this is it's it really forces you to take a look at the people you are spending your time with and so if you cannot connect with someone without alcohol, it's a great way to know whether or not this person really could be a potential suitor for you if you're dating or a really good friend for you. Like, can you still have fun without alcohol? It's just, it's almost like the ultimate test of a friendship because anyone can be fascinating or funny or attractive pretty much, or, you know, um, loving, or they can appear these things when you're under the influence of alcohol. Um, and so take it away and you really are confronted with who this, the reality of, of what your connection is with this person. And I, what I will say is that the connections I have now, many of whom, uh, many of which are still with, uh, with people I used to drink with, are actually so much deeper and so much they feel authentic is not the right word and I think it's a word that gets thrown around a lot um actually they're they're deeper they're richer and they're more multifaceted and there's almost a sort of I describe it as almost like a kind of a a meshing a meshing of souls that happens when you're connecting and communing with people without that kind of like gauzy blur of alcohol that you can't really yeah it's it's even happened with my husband who I've been with for 20 years. He now doesn't drink at all. He, he was a little later than me getting into the sober curiosity, but living with a sober curious person, I think he just naturally, you know, we just, yeah, he just naturally was drinking less and less to the point where he realized for himself, this isn't actually serving me on any level. I'm going to cut it out completely. And our relationship is so much deeper. And I already thought we were as intimate as you could be, you know, but there's even more layers. It turns out the same with my mom. Like I have a completely different, um, relationship with her because we've actually been able to have some very raw, painful and honest conversations that ultimately have helped us to, to bond and to see each other for who we truly are and accept each other for who we truly are, which is, has been priceless, you know, not only in terms of, my family relationships, but just in terms of how I see myself almost. So yeah, I think 
it can be a painful process when you're in it. Um, but ultimately, and again, this, this is something I was, you know, thinking about bringing up earlier when you said that these periods of, of getting sober curious can be challenging. They can be painful. And for me, so much of it is about focusing less, if at all, on what you're removing from your life and really putting all of your focus and all of your attention onto what it is you want to cultivate in your life, what you're bringing in, what you're creating for yourself, the kind of friendships you want to be having, the kind of experiences that really feel good to you and focusing, yeah, exclusively on that as, as your kind of motivation as you work through your sober curiosity and trying not to, as much as possible, think about what you're denying yourself or what you can't join in with anymore, you know? Because there are, like you said, there are so many, once you start looking, there are so many options and other things to do that don't include drinking. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because when I think about the times where I actually do drink, I never drink in my own apartment. I've never had that be something that I do. It just hasn't felt, because I I normally drink for connection Mm. and for being social. Mm-hmm. Um, which it's different for everybody, but I know that's my why is it, it allows me to be like more flirty with people and just like mm-hmm. I, everyone looks attractive, like exactly <laughs> what you were saying. And it's just like a love spell. Um, yeah. and, and then that, that ties into the next thing is that a lot of times whenever I do go out and I have a drink, it is when I am dating. And the so funny mm-hmm. thing is well, funny is not the right word but the interesting thing is that I'm drinking with people who are not people I actually really want to date right so it goes full circle is that I'm drinking so that I can feel flirty and relaxed with a date but I'm dating someone that I don't actually see a future with because they're someone that goes out and parties and drinks Interesting. Which is what I don't want. So thank you, therapist Ruby, for helping me. I'm like connecting these dots. Like how interesting is this? Because outside of that, with my good girlfriends and when I go to gatherings, they are always sober events. They're Mm. always like sober, uh, sober raves or like daybreakers, or Mm -hmm. it is, um, some sort of like laughing yoga class or Kundalini. That's where I spend the rest of my time. And the only time I drink really is when I'm trying to be, uh, social on a date, Mm. dating someone I don't really foresee a future with. Very interesting. Right. And this is the only, this is only really the clarity you can get when you get sober curious and you actually can look objectively at these situations, the situations where you're using alcohol and think about why it is, you know, in your case, well, in many people's cases, when it comes to dating, it's about making, making the person you're with seem more attractive. And, and comfortable and more com- and feeling more comfortable with them. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think, yeah, I, I like I shared, have been happily married for 20 years so, <laughs> or with my partner for 20 years, um, married for 16 this summer. But so I haven't really been on many dates and I certainly haven't been on a Tinder date. And I can only imagine the additional pressure in that kind of in the app dating world to, yeah, to have these very quick connections facilitated and alcohol appears to facilitate connection very, very fast. Um, but then we have to question the quality of that connection and the validity of that connection if it's relying on alcohol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's always seems like the most convenient thing. Like, let's just grab a quick drink and that's why yeah. that way you can see if you really like this person because you don't want to commit too much time to someone you're just yeah. meeting. Or 80 bucks on dinner versus like 10 bucks on drinks is quite different. There's that that mm-hmm. plays into it. 
hell, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, the- you can meet for a match a date in the park. And if someone turns their nose up at that and gets funny about it, then you've already got an indication of the kind of person they are and whether you might want to date this person, you know? Exactly. Precisely. It's so amazing when you think about actually how that's that's really a service to you is being more creative with your first meeting with someone because mm-hmm. you already are on some on doing something that's really true to who you are and not abandoning what you want. If you want to live yeah. a more sober, curious life, don't exactly. abandon that desire for the sake of dating. Exactly. Right? But it's because, you know, we do and I'll say it, particularly as women, we've been so conditioned into believing that finding a partner and finding love is like the be all and end all of our happiness. And of course, it's wonderful when you do meet someone and find someone that you can have that with. It's a incredible feeling, but it's not the be all and end all. Um, and it, I don't believe it should, it should be something that we pursue in, if it means forsaking, you know, other things we want for ourselves in our lives. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. A hundred and ten percent on board with that. I'm, I'm taking a really solid like, m- like man break, man cleanse, and I, I've just, I've come to realize how much I, I deeply, deeply love my company, and it's a new layer of it. I've, I've felt this way for a while now, but now I'm like, I have a mission to do. I have such a big purpose. It feels like in this moment, um, and yeah. that can always change and be different. But right now, like, I only want to spend time. I said this to myself like an hour ago. I was like, I only want to spend time with people who are championing for me. Mm, who are like champions of my heart. Like I only want to have friends and, uh, and, and any male companions in my future, they will be so fiercely devoted to exactly how I want to be the highest version of me and they will expect nothing less. And so I've got to really step into that version of me deeper and deeper and deeper every day. And so I'm just taking a break from like the, the, the dating scene just because I want to get really solid in that space. That's awesome. I love the fact that you're sharing that. And it's really interesting that even as you were sharing it, I was getting feelings of like, oh, it's a lot to ask, isn't it? That everyone in our life thinks we're amazing. Like, oh, isn't that like, you know, are we looking for kind of like sycophants and yes people? And I'm like, God, that, it, but again, it's so interesting. The conditioning that comes up around like, of course I want everyone in my life to think I'm great, you know, but, but that's for it. And for it to be a reflection of me really living my most, the, the, the best I can, like me really kind of expressing myself as me, but me really living as me. And of course I want to be seen in that and appreciated for that and supported in that. And I want to be around people that support me and my growth and who I am. Like, of course we do. And yet again, there's, there's conditioning around that, you know, this idea, I think we we've all been bred and conditioned with this idea that we have to kind of just put up, you know, put up with what we've been given. And I think more and more a question, more and more of us are questioning that um, and getting empowered to to really believe that no, I don't have to just take what's been handed me. I get to co-create my life and my experience here, you know. Um, and for me, being getting sober curious has been a, a really big way of regaining control like taking back the handlebars of my entire life experience and actually steering my life in the direction I want to go. Hmm. Yeah. It's, there's like a scarcity wound that comes up like, yes. Oh no, yes. if I, if I don't do all these things and I don't drink and I'm not available for fun like that, like everyone else in twenties, thirties, forties, then no one's going to hang out with me. No exactly. One's gonna be with me. 
Exactly. The scarcity mindset that is deeply, deeply ingrained. I mean, again, it's, you know, it's kind of been, it, it's a hangover from literally cave person mm. days, you know, this idea that there's not enough. Um, and yeah, I think that a lot of us, when we really get into the root of it, are using alcohol to paper, either paper over the not good enough stuff because we're, we're afraid it's as good as we're going to get it. So let's just make do. Let's make everything. Let's let's make what's in front of us like seem as good as it can be, um, or it's coming from. And I think I think it's a you know it's a Marianne Williamson quote that I'm going to get wrong, but she says something about like you know our greatest fear is our fear of our own greatness. Mm-hmm. The fact that we are actually so much more powerful and so much stronger and so much more creative than we've been led to believe. And that actually acknowledging that can be very frightening because then it's like, oh, and now I need to do something with this power. Ah, yeah, I <laughs> find needs. I find a lot of comfort in looking at women who were really comfortable with going inward and retreating in, in solitude. I think mm-hmm. it was Emily Dickinson who spent a lot of time alone mm-hmm. and she was brilliant and very empathic, very in touch with herself. And then I, when I have conversations with friends that I meet who say they, they've been spending a lot of time just like going inward or not responding to emails, even though they may be saying it's a bad thing, like, Oh, I got to get better at getting back to people on email or getting back to uh, people who ask me out and all this stuff. I actually Mm. look at that and I'm like, how do you do that? How do you not like jump on all these opportunities because my wound is definitely, I got to respond to every DM in my Instagram. I got to respond to all the dates or people that ask me out, like not respond. Yes, but respond yeah. with either a yes or a no. Like yeah. I just have to get back. Having things not tied up is on a deep level like ah, like it's so hard for me to have a conversation or even if I borrow a book from someone I need I need to make sure I give it back I just have to have things tied up and somehow I think this goes back to some scarcity wound um I think there's a couple things at play here of just like the perfection everything neat and tidy black and white OCD um but on some level getting back to people I think getting back to all the different people reaching out to me, that has some kind of scarcity wound. And so when people say they don't answer all their emails, or even if I have a teacher who isn't responding to my emails on time, Mm. I find that not triggering. I find that healing and inspiring. And Mm. I want to be more like people who put their email to the side and don't get back to their followers or questions about things because it takes up so much space in my life. Yeah. And it's just amazing. And yeah, I completely hear you. I had a situation in January this year, it was like literally two weeks after my book had come out where I got completely locked out of my Google G Suite. So I had no access to any of my numinous emails, any of my Ruby Warrington emails, and neither did my assistants or anybody. And it was immediately, I just started freaking out, immediately going into that scarcity wound of like, I'm not going to get none of the press that's happening around my book is going to happen. People are not going to reach out to me. They'll think I haven't responded to me and that I'm not interested and I'm going to lose all these opportunities is kind of where I was going. 
But after about three days of trying to sort this out with with Google, it took 10 days in the end, this sense of just peace and calm descended on me. And I was like, oh, actually now I only have to spend my time and my energy doing things that matter to me right now today. And that felt so powerful and so good. And it set a new benchmark for me in terms of how I respond and how much time I spend in my inbox. I'm still very much like you, very excited about the opportunities coming in, the emails coming in, feeling like I want to be on top of everything and make sure everyone knows that I'm relevant, right? But at the same time, really reveling in taking long breaks from email, doing a lot more kind of in-person meetings, a lot more phone calls rather than emails, um, sending long voice notes to friends, and really putting my own needs beyond the needs of every person in my inbox who's wanting something from me. Mm. And it's, it's, I love, I love it. You're sharing this because you've been traveling for a while or in and out going places. And I've reached out to your assistant like five times. Like, even if you're not getting back to me, I'm like, get on my show. I want you on my show. Like the people who want you, like you are so relevant. Like your energy is in the field, in, in the field of consciousness. It's all around like you, I'm talking about you specifically. Like we feel your energy. We know you're doing something amazing. We want you. And there's no amount of avoiding your inbox that is going to, I think, repress the right opportunities. This is what I kept telling myself. And it comes back to, again, that slightly more mystical mindset. Like if something is truly meant for me, then it will find me. And trusting that, you know, not feeling like I'm going to miss out on all the good stuff if I'm not making myself constantly available. And really knowing that that being constantly available, constantly on is one of the reasons I drank, you know, it was to make myself available socially in ways that I didn't necessarily have the energy or the inclination for, but feeling like I had to be part of those social situations or I was going to get left out or I wouldn't have any friends or people wouldn't like me, you know? Um, so come, it's coming, bringing it back to sober curious. It kind of comes from that same place. Mm, yeah, I love the I love the turn that that conversation just took. Mm, me too. It's a, one of my favorite subjects, actually. Um, I think that we'll feel a lot more of us are going to be stepping away from that always on. And like you said, just really relishing um, the recharge that comes when we take time alone and we stop saying yes to everything. Something I've I've done recently, which everyone listening to the show, I mean, I have to do what's right for me, right? And, and mm-hmm. hopefully this will give permission to people to also do this if, if they're feeling overwhelmed. And I love you all. But something I've had to recently start doing is is straight up deleting some messages in my DM and my Instagram mm. um, because I just get a lot that... Uh, that in, in no messages that say like I love you thank you for what you're doing I always try to respond to those for right now like I might not always be able to but sometimes when I get the messages that are just asking questions like what was that song you shared the other day you know the song that I shared the name specifically of to make sure that everyone had it because I knew people would ask um for my own sanity and and peace I've had to start deleting a few things here and there um, and it's, it's helped me a lot and I, I love everyone, but that's been something that's been really soothing because I don't want to turn off my DMS altogether, but I know that 
if I continuously allow myself to go into the into Instagram and the DMs, I won't be in my creative flow, in my juices. I won't be writing. I won't be doing poetry. I won't be me anymore. Mm. So turning off all the excess has been like so helpful for me to just stay in my own body and my own feminine, to not be overthinking, just even something as simple as that, not getting back to everyone. Uh, yeah, it's been really helpful. Oh, it's huge. It's really huge. And we, I don't think we can really, um, recognize the, the overall impact of that until we start taking those actions, because it's so easy just to get swept into the kind of like being constantly available and every little dopamine hit that you get from every little message of like, someone wants me, someone loves me, someone likes me, you know, Mm -hmm. um, it's super addictive. And I mean, yeah, I did a whole podcast episode of my episode talking about conscious social media and really equating, you know, social media is kind of just like alcohol or any other drug. It gives us a dopamine hit that we are being invited to partake in (laughs) more and more and more, you know? So, um, taking some real steps to create good boundaries around that is super important. I talk about this often and I always recommend it. I remove the Instagram app from my phone every night. I delete the app off my phone and then all weekend, And yeah, I could be growing my following. I could be doing Instagram stories. Saturdays are the time most people are looking at stories. You could be getting tons more followers. But you know what? I don't care. (laughs) I would rather have my Saturday be a time for me to just be with myself, be with my husband, be with my cat, make beautiful food um, and, and come back into myself, you know? Really? That's really cool. Every (laughs) single night. So you just, what time do you, um, what time do you delete it? What time do you reinstall it? I kind of have office hours and it began when I was writing my books because I really need those first few hours in the morning of first waking up, like say seven till 11 are my prime writing time. And I need, I didn't have any time to lose in terms of getting my, meeting my book deadline. So I realized if Instagram was on my phone, I would, I would, the the temptation to check it would be too strong. So I just deleted it and it stuck. So I now take it off. It depends around seven, 8 PM in the evening. And I put it on between 10, 30 and 11 in the morning. I'm so glad you shared that. I'm going to try this because I have the, I have the thing that, um, I have the screen time app on my iPhone that will turn off my access to it. It won't even turn it off. It'll just say like, warning, you've right. reached 30 minutes. And then what do I do? I immediately click ignore for today. Yeah. <laughs> That's, like, there's a psychological <laughs> barrier when you actually delete it. So I oh, feel yeah. like that would be really helpful getting into that new habit. And it's just, it's going to come back in the morning. It's going to come back in the morning. Like it, Like I said, so I... Instagram is very much, it's work for me. I use it for work. It's a platform for me to promote my books, to promote my ideas, to promote our articles, um, me to connect with people. Um, I don't necessarily use it so much for entertainment. Um, and so, yeah, it's become a, it's become a real, it's become a habit and it's not just a psychological barrier. It's like not seeing, not having the app on the screen of my phone means I'm literally just not even thinking about it. True. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe like also putting the Instagram app at the very back page on your phone instead of like the first page where mine currently is. That's where that's where email, Facebook and Instagram uh, all need to go to the last page. All of them. Yeah. I mean, there are situations where like, you know, I'm out at some event and I've turned it off where I'll literally reinstall it just to do a quick story about some really cool thing that's happened and then delete it again which seems like a lot of steps to go through, but 
they're worth it. Yeah, me. I mean, you're going to spend that time either going through those steps or being on Instagram scrolling. And either scroll- way, that time exactly. is going to probably be absorbed by doing something <laughs> involved with Instagram, like to some degree. Exactly. Um, beautiful. Okay, so what I would love to do is hear how people can connect with you online before we go over to the Divine Deep Dive round. Cool. Well, Instagram, obviously, between 11 and 8. <laughs> And I do respond to most of my DMs. I don't get a huge amount. And I wonder if that's why well, I don't get a huge amount of DMs. So I do tend to respond to them. It sometimes takes me a few days. But um, that is definitely where you can hear most about kind of what's up in my world. And I have a newsletter that goes out twice a week. The Numinous Newsletter, lots of people have told me over the years that they've really looked forward to it. It's the only newsletter they read. It has all sorts of fun astrology stuff and links to events and all kinds of things. So you can subscribe to that in either of my link trees on Instagram. I'm at the underscore Numinous or at Ruby Warrington. Um, or if you go to the Numinous, the hyphen Numinous.com, you can get the newsletter there as well. I'm one of those people. You are one of the few emails I actually open. I actually read. I always go scroll right down to Leo and Leo rising and Virgo. To see what's up. Yep. I love it. And I also love that you also share, um, events going on and they're not just your events. Like that's, what's so wonderful. You're just like, Hey, here are lots of cool events happening in California and New York. Like go all over as well. I mean, we try and be, we try and have as multi, you know, cover as many different territories as possible. As you kind of mentioned earlier, New York, in LA are obviously real hubs for these kinds of events but yeah we feature events from all over so so cool I I love that okay so the divine deep dive round is whatever comes up for you first quick fire style okay (laughs) in your book you said that you found yourself with a sweet tooth after becoming sober curious and I'm curious what is that sugary treat that you love Ooh, well, the first summer I was properly like really not drinking. Um, there's a ice cream vegan ice. Well, it's an ice cream parlor called Van Lewins. There's one in Williamsburg in Brooklyn where I live, and one in Greenpoint, and they do the best vegan ice cream. And that became a, if not nightly, then three or four nights a week habit to stroll down there and get a scoop of something delicious after dinner. <laughs> I love that. Mm. Who would you say is your teacher in life, at least right now? my teacher in life I've spoken well people may be familiar I collaborate with a woman named Alexandra Roxo we created something called Moon Club together which I'm no longer a part of but that I describe us as having a collaborationship and I think we teach each other so much just by being in this close friendship where we also collaborate on a business level and yeah we've been through some real kind of crunchy times together and come out the other side and we've really yeah I've learned so much from being in that relationship just about relating and being empathetic and having boundaries and all of the all of the things so Alexandra and we we lead retreats together so Mm. I was actually just at her uh place yesterday recording with her Oh, very cool. Yeah. People will know who she is. Yeah, yeah, this interview is scheduled to come out right after that, I think. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I, I would love to be on a fly, a fly on the wall just to watch y'all like interact and <laughs> brainstorm and create. It's sure. pretty rad, yeah. If love tasted like a flavor, what would it be? Chocolate. What is one non-negotiable in your morning routine besides Instagram? <laughs> besides re-downloading it, I guess. Yeah, re-downloading it. Um, green tea. I have probably about two liters of green tea. I do two two full pots of green tea every morning. Oh, wow. Mm. It's unique. I haven't heard anyone say green tea in a while. 
<laughs> used to be like everything was green tea. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I stopped drinking coffee um, many years ago, 10 years ago, and occasionally have it here and there. But I replaced it with green tea at the time, and I've become a real aficionado, and I have my favorites, and yeah, I what's, love it. What's one of your favorite brands? I get Harney & Sons uh, Japanese Sencha. Japanese Sencha. Okay, yeah. cool. We'll look that up and try to put a link to it in the show notes. Cool. If you could be any person de- dead or alive for a full day, who would you be and what's the first thing you would do? The first person who came into my head was Marilyn Monroe. I was kind of obsessed with her when I was a teenager um, or an early, like, 12, 13-year-old, I guess. Um, I found her story to be so, so sad and poignant in a way, and I feel like she was such a in a weird way, representation of, you know, the way that the divine feminine has been so abused and subjugated. Um, so if I was Marilyn Monroe for a day, I would, I don't know, shave off my hair and organize like a march, (laughs) like a kind of alternative women's march or something like that. (laughs) That's fantastic. It's like if the Me Too movement met Britney Spears. Basically, yeah. Come together. I love it in the body of Marilyn Monroe. I think that would have quite an impact. (laughs) What's your favorite form of movement right now? Favorite form of movement. Um, I'm a, I'm a, and I talk about this again, something I talk about. I love yoga glow. I've really been, I go through phases of doing yoga every day and I've been back in one of those phases recently. I just do like a half an hour session kind of in my home office and no fancy clothes. I do it in my pajamas. Um, but I really do think having a, you know, a 30 minute kind of nice warming fast vinyasa flow helps me get in my body in a way that feels really good. I'm going through the exact same thing right now. I've been using, I've used yoga glow before and I really like it. I've been using down dog. Mm. If you've never heard of it, they have amazing classes and it's, it's free. It's free. And you get to choose like which level and how long, and you could do, you could do like a 59 minute practice and it'll figure out how to create a sequence for you. That's totally different from yesterday's 59 minute. Like you could pick any time and they've created this formula to where it'll make a sequence for you on the spot. It's really amazing. That's really amazing. But yeah, there's something really beautiful about being able to just do it in your apartment and your PJs and moving to New York has, it's, it's almost as if it was just in, in my body immediately. I was like yoga in my apartment now pajamas. Mm. Like, Mm. it's like, you'd really need to do that and to make your yoga practice as easy as possible here. Because Mm -hmm. if you go to, I find that if you go to a place that you require a train walking through loudness, walking through busyness, like it almost, um, subtracts from that whole yoga experience so that you just like cancels it out. Cancels it out. Thing about hate. I I hate having to be a certain place at a certain time. I'm because I'm always like dead on time. And the way I'm always dead on time is that I kind of obsess over it and stress over it. So having scheduled workouts, like getting to a class on time, it just creates so much stress for me. I need to just be able to do it when I've got the moment, when I've got the moment. We are so alike. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm exactly the same way. I'm like, right at this time I need to arrive. That means the train and this and being in yeah. Brooklyn, you got to get the L and like, oh, no, so much. Okay. Very last question I'll pick is what do you want to be praised for more than anything? My writing. Hmm. that's you know I'm really proud of my I think I'm a really good writer and I'm really proud of it and there's a lot tied up in there about you know the validation from my dad who's also a writer and all that kind of like 
the deeper stuff. But like, yeah, my writing is what I'm most proud of. And so that's what I would like, what I like, what I crave praise for, I suppose. Okay, well, Ruby, I just want to take a second to say that your writing is beautiful <laughs> and it resonates with so many people. I came downstairs when your book arrived. Um, it was delivered to my parents' house um, when I was staying there for a week and I came downstairs. My mom had already opened the package, was already sitting there drinking her coffee, reading your book. She's like, this is amazing. I love this book. So your writing is, is touching people that, you know, it wouldn't because she's not this mystic energy at all. And yet she was yeah. finding herself so enthralled with your writing so thank you for everything that you've been doing cool thank you for sharing that i love hearing that (laughs) everyone make sure that you get a copy of this book and find yourself getting a little bit sober curious perhaps Um, if you want to get the show notes for this go to maddiemoon.com forward slash ruby dash warrington and you can get all the links that we mentioned in this episode we would love to hear your questions your comments your thoughts you can head on over to instagram during our business hours or you can leave a comment on the show note um page for this at maddiemoon.com thank you everyone for listening to the mind body musings podcast we will see you next wednesday